0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days we're talking about the Ark and the Temple, meeting God in the past, present, and future. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road in a class that we're going to call this fall Ark and Temple. And when I say Ark, I'm not talking about Noah's Ark, but rather the Ark of the Covenant, the box that would carry the Ten Commandments and lead God's people through, say, the wilderness into the promised land and lead them around uh, until it was placed into a temple, and then that would be a new journey. So that's the story. And to begin sort of our journey together, I want to talk about one of the most important passages in the Bible that nobody talks about which is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I'll recap it. Second Samuel chapter 7 is about King David at the top of his game. Uh, King David is God's man, and through fits and starts, finally, uh, everything has come together like he dreamed, even like God had dreamed. He's got a new capital city, Jerusalem, which he took from a Canaanite people called the Jebusites. He's got 12 united tribes. Nothing is ever going to be better uh, than this moment in Israel's history. And so King David has an idea. And that idea is to now build a house for God. Uh, what had happened is the ark was formerly a temporary arrangement. Uh, half the book of Exodus is about the creation of a tent and to house this ark, and then it would be able to move and pivot and move around. But King David has this idea now that he's going to build a home that would remain fixed in the capital city. So this is why it's important. And it would be the prophet Nathan— God would always send prophets uh, when God's people asked for kings. Prophets to speak truth to them, if you will. And Nathan was a court prophet who was not afraid to tell David what he thought, and he would provide God's response. So I'm going to read a few verses to you, and then we'll see if we can unpack attention that is in existence today. Ark and temple. We'll have some fun with it. Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, beginning with the fourth verse. So David has declared his idea to build a temple, and this is what God says. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Well, David should have known better. As I've mentioned already, half the book of Exodus is about the creation of a tent, uh, which is all God ever asked for. But then David should have known better from his own personal experience. Uh, There's a story that most of us know from from childhood about David and Goliath, but there's even more to it than just the stone and the giant and the little boy, uh, the shepherd who would one day be king. Uh, The story of David and Goliath is really a, a story about the shift from The Bronze Age Hebrews into an Iron Age nation. And and it happens on a battlefield because the Bronze Age Hebrews are facing an Iron Age army, the Philistines. And what these words simply mean is that tools and implements are different uh, according to whichever period that you're living in, whichever epoch, if you will. Uh, If you're a Bronze Age person, then you've got inferior tools to an Iron Age army. An Iron Age army will have swords and shields and chariots and such. And so, uh, there's a there's a standoff in a valley southwest of Jerusalem called the Valley of Elah, and these two armies are completely completely stopped in front of each other, almost like a World War I type thing, with Israelites camped on one side of the valley and the Philistines camped on the other side of the valley, both in high places. And there's a plane in the middle. And the plane will mean certain death for for God's army because they don't have chariots, they don't have the weapons. And in adding to injury, the Philistines have a giant and, you know, right? And he's Goliath of Gath, he's this huge guy, and he's got Big old shield bearer. His his shield is so heavy and large that somebody carries it for him. And he's got a big old sword and and the the Bible is really really descriptive about Goliath and what a what a bad dude he is. And then David is just a shepherd boy bringing his brother's uh, provisions from Bethlehem. And David David looks at this and he sees. He sees the situation with the different with different eyes. Goliath is trying to taunt them into a proxy battle, which was something common in the ancient world. If you could just have two champions fight, whichever one one wins, the other one uh, surrenders. And so Goliath knows that no one can beat him. Right? Of course, David says, "Well, I, I, I've fought bigger things than this as a shepherd boy with my sling and my stones. I've killed bears and lions and anything that might threaten my flocks." And so he has an idea that he will become the champion to fight Goliath. And in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're told that Saul, the king, and I'll say some more about Saul in a minute, does what only Saul knows what to do, which is to put his own armor on this little boy, and it's heavy. It's it's too big for him. It's clunky. Uh, it's expected. It's what they always do. And yet David says, "I can't, I can't move in this thing." So David goes down to the stream, and he and he takes out stones from the from the stream there and puts it in his pouch. And of course, the rest is history. Now, I have I have read about ancient warfare that says that David was probably a little smarter than than we we give him credit for um, slaying. Have a much farther range than a javelin, for instance. Uh, I also read an interesting article from a physician that said that if Goliath had actually gigantism, if I'm saying that, that word correctly, he also probably had very poor peripheral vision, so David was able to just sort of dance around and, and pop him in the head. But the key verse here, so besides just the just the, the classic cliche of David versus Goliath, the key verse is is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, and it's David's own pronouncement about how things work. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, when God is overall, we can be nimble and we can pivot. We don't have to settle for what's in front of us. We don't have to say, well, this is the way it always happens or this is the way we always do it. When we're faithful, uh, we can follow God into new adventures and we can win. So when I first encountered this important story, this 2 Samuel chapter 7, with David dreaming of building a temple... I think I assumed for a long time, even taught it in classes, that David was just being fancy. He was now a king and wanted something uh, fancy in his capital city, perhaps fancy for God. But a deeper dive into scriptures actually reveals a shift in David's thinking David's impulses really are good in wanting to build a temple for, to house this ark. And so we'll recap what we know so far. The ark is a temporary arrangement. Half the book of Exodus is about an ark sort of moving around in a tent. And David wants to build something fixed, something that you can go to. Uh, we see this shift actually later in the story as, uh, as David's son Absalom actually attempts a coup, which was something that the prophets also warned about that if you, uh, if you have a king, you're gonna have a king's children, and the children are gonna be trouble. And later on in David's own story, it's 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Absalom almost pulls this thing off. He almost, uh, kicks his daddy off the throne. And there's this really sad, sad scene where David is fleeing the city of Jerusalem, his own capital city with his courtiers, uh, with his priests, and with the ark. They're going to remove it for safety. And I'll read, read just a just a little vignette to you to show you how David is sort of beginning to change his mind when it comes to a temporary arrangement for God. This is 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning with the 24th verse, just two verses. Abiathar came up. This was one of the court priests. Zadok also, another court priest, with all the Levites, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. They set down the ark of God until all the people have passed out of the city. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and the place where it stays. But if he says, I take no pleasure in you, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So what we're seeing here is that already a sense that David needed a place to go to, a place of pilgrimage. He's actually t- taking a little bit of a humility position and saying that God needs to be somewhere uh, that I can return to again and again, as opposed to God following me around or carrying around this box uh, whenever we need to run somewhere. So here's where we are so far when it comes to the idea of ark and temple. Ark is temporary and a temple is fixed. There's always a tension between fixed and the portable nature of worship, even to this day, which we'll we'll conclude with when we finish this. But there's always a fixed and portable nature of our trying to approach God. The Ark was portable. It's a box. You can carry it around. But even though it was portable, and according to the book of Exodus through the rest of the Torah, and especially in the book of Numbers chapter 4, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant had to be covered when it was moved. So in other words, their religion could be nimble, but it had to be very intentional and very careful, and so it had to be covered when it was moved, and only the priest descended from Aaron could even ever see it. So it wasn't it wasn't as if it were just something you sort of threw around, but uh, you could still move it, but you had to be really, really careful when you did. And this is why it sat on in the same place called Shiloh, up in what is now known as Samaria, or today on a map would be the disputed West Bank territories, uh, sat in a place called Shiloh for 369 years, it just sat there. So in a sense, it too became fixed. It became a place where people would go to for uh, for pilgrimages. Now, every strategy comes with a cost. And and I will say that this sheer, but you could see by sitting in shallow, they were trying to make it permanent, right? But the sheer portability caused people to just disregard it somewhat. Um, And and eventually what happens is that the ark would become lost to them. We're told a story in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the priest— We say Eli, but if you're speaking Hebrew, his name is Eli. The priest Eli was the high priest tending to the Ark of the Covenant, and his two sons actually took the Ark into battle, attempting to recreate Joshua, perhaps attempting to uh, secure their success. The Philistines were, were moving up the coast, and so they take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and they lose it. Which is a terrible blow uh, to to God's people because now they've lost the presence of God, I and mean, you can imagine the Philistines are a, a European people, if you will, that are looking for living space. They're all kind of fighting for this, but they're pagan. They're not they're not God's people. They're, they worship you know false gods, and now they have in their own possession an ark that represents for them the very presence of God, the Ten Commandments inside, and also representing God's presence. And so if you keep reading, you find that they get it back and the the I mean the, the Philistines take it back to their cities and they hot potato around for a while because terrible things happened to them. And we'll tell that story in another podcast, but just think raiders of the lost ark here. You just don't want to touch the thing. And they send it back. And then Samuel Uh, The boy Samuel, who was the priest under Eli, not his children who were actually killed in battle when they lose the ark, but the boy Samuel, the famous boy Samuel, who becomes the greatest prophet in their story. Uh, He comes to the south and picks up the ark, and he rallies the nation, and the ark sort of moves to a couple places in a more permanent state again, waiting for a king. Uh, Samuel becomes the leader of the nation, and then God's people say once again, well, we need something fixed. We need something permanent. We need something to rally around. In this case, they don't think about a box anymore. Now they want a monarch, which breaks the prophet's heart. The first of these, all this is in response to the ark and the portableness of it, right, and the problems with portableness. And so the first king that God calls, or or the the first king that they try out, if you will, is from the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Saul, and King Saul on paper looks great. Uh, Saul looks good in the in the saddle. He's tall and he's handsome. We're told in scripture that there was nobody better looking than this guy. So of course this guy's gonna be gonna make a great king, right? They're gonna have a new camelot with the king. Finally, they've been ruled before by tribes under prophets and judges, and it just sort of didn't feel permanent, it didn't feel fixed. And so they call Saul, and right away God has a problem with his choice. First Samuel 15. You can take your Bible and just flip all through these. These stories make great serial novels. are wonderful. But in 1 Samuel 15, uh, God, um, God God asks uh, Saul to, to take over a people called the Amalekites. And this is one of these Old Testament stories that I need to, to tell you about. It's one of these where it's one of these kill every man, woman, and child kind of stories, right? If you read Joshua and Judges, it's full of these. And I need to tell you that there's a principle in Scripture that I like to call the principle of exaggeration. You can take a Bronze Age document And it seems harsh, and people will say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's bloodthirsty. Well, what we're doing is we're we're unfairly comparing Bronze Age people to the way that 21st century people think or process. The way you need to do this is you need to compare this Bronze Age document with other Bronze Age documents and see what they're trying to say. And for instance, I'll I'll give you two examples of the way we misuse the Bible. Um, Time does does not mean anything to them like it means to us. If If they talk about years, they're either symbols or exaggerations. So to say that somebody lived for 500 years is an exaggeration. It's not the same idea of time. They're just trying to tell you that they were very, very... Old, right? Or to say that every man, woman, and child in the village was supposed to be uh, destroyed—it's uh, just a command from God for them to be obedient. And in the case of the Amalekites, what Saul does is he kills everybody but the king. This is the this is the story. In other words, Saul beginning to see that monarchs are different than regular people; they're, they're a special class, and so he saves them because they are—they are. They are uh, uh, you know, they, you, don't, you don't hurt a regent. Hey, I read somewhere that's exactly what saved Napoleon's skin in the end because they could have killed him if he'd remained a general. But when he became an emperor, you know, other monarchs in Europe weren't going to kill another monarch, right? So to, in God's view, in the Bible's view, all people are equal. There aren't people more special than another. And God is very, very sad about calling Saul as the king. Uh, he's, he's wrong. He thinks like a monarch, which is exactly what God feared that he would be, and he goes and seeks out a man uh, for his, of his own heart, if you will, a man of his own heart, and that would be the little boy with the slingshot. There's another problem though with Saul too. In addition to just being fancy and and looking at monarchs and thinking he's better than other people, uh, he also doesn't respect this nimble religion, this portable religion, if you will. And there are a couple there are a couple of examples of this in First Samuel fourteen. He tries to bring it into battle, just like the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, when they lost it to the Philistines. Saul's repeating the same thing. God is not a totem. God is not a lucky rabbit's foot. God is not an amulet that we uh, bring into something, and yet Saul had already forgotten. And then there's a really telling little story that I want to run by you here to show you what kings can do. Uh, He's very impatient with the portableness of, of the religion, to the point that he also just won't even wait for it. He won't wait for it. So I think the, the problem with Saul, the reason why he's a bad king, is because he just doesn't get his role, which is to continue to be obedient. And even kings have to obey their own laws, and even kings have to wait. So there's a scene in, in 1 Samuel 13, actually, he's about to go into, Saul's about to go into battle with the Philistines again. There seemed to be the perennial problem in that part of the nation, and uh, Samuel has been Instructed Saul to wait and to pray. Well, here we go. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul, the armies leaving him, the volunteer armies leaving him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well being. And he offered the burnt offering. Hey, Saul's a king, but he ain't ordained, okay? So he just does it himself. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And when Saul went out to meet him and salute him, Samuel said, What have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the people were slipping away from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines were mustering, I said, Now the Philistines will come upon me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, there you go. In First Chronicles 13, we're told that no one was accustomed to consulting the ark in the time of Saul. So here's the tension, right? If it's portable, is it still important? If it's portable, is it misused? Do you really want something uh, that, 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 is, that can pivot, or do you want something that has a little more gravity, a little more fixed? So perhaps I'm beginning to see David uh, with this important passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, as taking a humility position with regards to the ark to ensure, if you will, that it remains important. Now, with regards to the temple itself, David would never build it. It would be Solomon who would build it, and and it's in 1 Kings chapter 6. We're told that it took seven years to build the temple and a pile of money. Um, Somebody asked me in a Bible study not too long ago, if half the book of Exodus is about the building of a tent to hold the ark, where are the instructions for the building of the temple? And the answer is there are none. There are none. But in First Kings 6, God did say as they finished it that he would dwell in it If, if Solomon and God's people, the Hebrews, would follow God's ordinances and live in his steps, if they did that. And that's a big if. And what you're going to see as we continue through Scripture is this gap between God's dream and our ability to uh, pull it off. But there is a telling detail. If you pay an attention, I don't know how many people dig around books like 1 Kings, but if you you read it, you, you will learn that it took seven years to build God's house, Wow, that's fancy. However, it would take 13 years to build Solomon's house. So you see, even the king uh, has got something a little nicer uh, than the temple, which leads to the problem of the temple strategy. I'll recap. No such thing as a cost-free strategy. If you've got temporary worship, then the temptation is to disregard. If you've got fixed worship, like a temple, then that could be a confusion of means and ends, a checked. Box. Uh, Now that I've built something, I don't have to think about it anymore. A temple uh, can lead to, to put it in modern terms, can lead to Sunday morning behavior and Monday morning behavior or Saturday night behavior and Sunday morning behavior. I remember riding a crowded elevator. When I first moved to Birmingham in a, in a hospital, and an orderly called out to another orderly behind me, and he said, girlfriend, where did I see you last night? And I was wearing my clerical collar, and she said, I'm going to have to tell you later. Well, actually, you can tell him now because God knows where you were then too. But you see, temples can lead us to think that we've done something uh, once we've put God in a box. Well, Nathan's prophecy would come true. If you can remember what I read to you at the first of the podcast, um, I don't want this house, God said, in effect. And, and, and this would happen if we keep reading scripture and we're going to see this this fall. The temple would divide the nation. The temple would put them in the crosshairs of foreign armies. The temple would distract them. The temple would cause them to forget. The temple would cause the prophet Jeremiah to call it a den of robbers. Uh, Eventually, the temple would become the plaything of a madman, King Herod. Uh, And during the time of Jesus, the world of Jesus, uh, it would become the wonder of the ancient world, a cash cow, the largest nonprofit on earth. And then one day on a dark Friday, the darkest Friday in human history, uh, God's only son died in the shadow of this house. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, which only God can do. And God says, uh, defend. Definitively and finally, as it all started in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I want you. I'm trying to point out that there's a cost to both strategies, right? Just remember this one more time, if if it's nimble and we pivot, sometimes it's not important. If we put if we put God in a fixed position, then sometimes we think that we can perhaps walk away. You can imagine someone saying, "Of my own church, well, I got baptized at St. Luke's, I'm in." Uh, because it's on Montrose Road and the and, and there you go. And, and and mom and mom and dad built that church, that kind of thing. You can you can sort of have a religion that's compartmentalized if you will, and you can Confuse means with ends. We used to play a little game in Sunday school. My Sunday school growing up, you put your fists together and you bunch your fingers and you go, here the church, and then here's the steeple. You make a little pointy pointy finger steeple, and then you open your fist and you wiggle your fingers, and it goes, open the doors and hear all the people. And when I was a little child in my Baptist Sunday school, I was taught that the wiggly fingers are the church, that the, the people are the church. Um, my own Episcopalian children, when they were growing up in Sunday school, they played the same game. But they were taught that the steeple is the church. Uh, I wonder if the answer is yes—that they both are. I mean, which one? Which is the church: the people or the steeple? And the answer is yes. We see this today in American Christianity. Uh, non-denominational churches are are pretty much arcs. Uh, they're portable and they're nimble. They're able to pivot. Uh, there's no there's no sentimentality when it comes to tearing down a building to build a bigger one. But there is a cost, and the cost is being closely tied to the personality of the pastor or the worship team. And so, if there's a scandal, for instance, uh, they don't have the they don't have the larger structure, if you will, to 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 keep them from from being exposed. So sometimes those churches can be vulnerable. The Episcopal Church, which is my denomination, or I would say mainline Protestant Christianity. Um, which is, since since that's my context, I would say that's pretty much a temple idea. I mean, we're more of a 19th century denomination than a 21st century denomination. We do things the same way. People come to us. We paint the doors red and wait for everybody to show up. That's a temple idea. The problem with our temples is they're very resistant to change, which means that they're not aware of the marketplace of the 21st century and thus declining, which is something else that we'll talk about in our class this year. I will say this before we before we close, I I had a remarkable conversation with a business person uh, over vacation this summer who gave me a little education in in the the thought of business or the thought of for profit versus nonprofit thinking. You know, nonprofit thinking would be that's the temple idea. We don't, we, we've always done it that way or we don't do that here. Uh, you could lose your job in, in the for profit world for that. But see, the churches, b- because they're largely temples, ours, we don't know that we have to innovate. But my friend brought up three basic levers or ideas that must be held in tension when it comes to any business idea. And these are the ideas of compensation, quality of life, and status. And I won't belabor this too much, but this will make sense when you think about it. If you're an offshore driller, you have no quality of life and you have no status, but you make a lot of money. That's how you get somebody to do it. If you have a Washington intern, that person has, you don't have to pay them anything, but status is through the roof. This sort of thing. You're always working for three levers. The problem with with church in the marketplace, and, and again, temples really fail to see this, and perhaps maybe art. Like non-dom churches are maybe too too worldly in this way. I don't know. Uh, But let me keep going with the idea. The problem with, with churches is they don't see what they're selling. They don't know what they're supposed to do. In the past, I think churches sold compensation, which simply means the promise of heaven when you die. I'm not sure that means anything in a world that is more spiritual than religious these days. I'm not sure anybody really believes that you've got to belong to a church in order to get to the pearly gate. So let's just say we don't have that to sell anymore. The other one is status, which the Episcopal Church sold for a long time, but that was waning before the pandemic, and it's pretty much gone now. Which brings us to quality of life, which is all we've ever had which is really should be all we've ever had, which are written down on the Ten Commandments that were contained within the ark. God and each other. That's what we've got. And if our churches can remember to find ways to say yes, to innovate, but also keep our arks holy, uh, keep our temple worship holy, a pilgrimage to return to again and again and again with the idea of also pivoting as necessary to ensure that we have a quality of life uh, that we've got we've got community and we've got friendship and we've got people and we've got laughter as we worship god together i hope you're beginning to see i think we can say yes to both ideas yes to the tension is worship an ark is worship a temple the answer this year is going to be yes Well, thanks, everybody. We'll keep this going. And next time, we're going to talk about the origins of the ark, uh, how it came to be, and what it came to mean to God's people. See you then.